Good morning. <sighs> My name is Tim Riley. I'm a pastor here at COV, and I don't feel good at all. Anybody else? Okay, a couple of us. Hi, Sadia. We're going to be in God's Word today, and we're doing things a little bit differently. And part of that is so we don't get uh, so stale in doing the exact same things every week. And so usually at this point, we would have someone come up and read the passage. We'd ask everybody to stand, and we would read the Bible together. And even though this passage is just as important as every passage that we do that with, we just decided this week we weren't going to do that. But we are going to study the text. We're going to walk through every single verse, and today's message is called The Filtering Word. Today we're going to conclude yet another chapter in the book of John. We've been going through John for quite some time. In fact, we've been going through John since last decade, just so you guys know. And today we're concluding chapter 12, but not only that, we're also concluding Jesus' public ministry. Up until this point, we have studied three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry where he walked around and he taught and we studied conversations of Jesus's, in Jesus' earthly ministry where he talked to a whole range of types of people. We've studied his miracles that were signs to point out his deity and his sovereignty. We've studied the altercations with the religious authorities and their anger towards Jesus, their distrust and their lack of belief in Jesus being who he says that he is. Today we're going to study essentially two things. One, lack of belief and what it does. And belief and what that does. And so we're going to start, you don't have to turn there, it'll be up on the screen. We're going to start where we've started multiple times when we've taught a passage in John to point out why we study the book of John because the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, wrote towards the end of his letter why he wrote this letter. Here's what he says. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so I want us to think about that as we study this passage today. As we study what John is going to point back to, which is the nation of Israel's unbelief. And it was spoken about 700 years before it even happened. And then we will hear Jesus' words, which ironically lack context, because what we're going to study today, where Jesus talks, it doesn't say that he said it specifically to the Pharisees or to the crowd. But it is a culmination of Jesus' entire earthly ministry. So turn with me, John chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 37 as we walk through the end of John chapter 12. Here's what it says in verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. He stunk, or as King James says, he stinketh. And he had taught about the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he allowed Lazarus to die so he could show up, show off, and raise Lazarus from the dead. And it could point to the deity that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament spoke about. John is commenting on the nation of Israel's lack of belief. And it is represented by this crowd, especially the religious elite who are known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the ruling council. 
This nation had the law of God. This nation had the history of God. This nation had the promises of God. And this nation had God with skin walking among them. And yet they were still unwilling and unable to believe. Jesus had performed miracle after miracle, sign after sign, pointing out that he is not just some prophet, that he is not just some guy, but he is a deity in front of people who thought that they believed in God but refused God's Son over and over and over again. Verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, where he quotes, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? See, John quotes Isaiah 53. Some of us know Isaiah 53 as the fifth, go- the fifth gospel. Isaiah 53 53 is a prophetic announcement of what the suffering servant would be like. And John points this out, not just in verse 1, but really contextually more of what is said in Isaiah 53. And so here's what it says in verse, well, verse 1 says exactly what John said. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But look at verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In fact, in the Gospel of John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are these instances where people say they don't even know which one Jesus is when he's in a crowd of other Jews. Why? Because there was nothing special about his appearance. John was hinting at the fact that Jesus didn't come the way the nation of Israel would expect or really how they would want him to. And they, the nation of Israel, prided themselves on their knowledge of the Old Testament, but they didn't understand it. They were shallow or fundamental in their interpretation, and it created this prideful view that they knew exactly what the glory of God would look like in the Messiah that was promised, and to them it was a political warrior that would overthrow their oppressors rather than a suffering servant who would lay down his life for his people. Verse 39, for this reason, they could not believe. For this reason. He begins for, with what reason? Because they didn't recognize him. They didn't see him for who he was. John begins in the very gospel that we've been studying for years. In John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, The true light gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Recognizing and receiving Jesus is what the entire gospel, according to John, is all about. Recognizing and receiving Jesus. In fact, it's really what our salvation is all about. It's really what God's plan is all about, that you would recognize and receive God's only son, Jesus Christ. Let me, let me make a statement that might be offensive to some of us. Not all people, not every human being, not every person will be saved. Not every person will want Jesus Christ. And if you think that's wrong, you may not understand grace. God gives the opportunity to the nation of Israel in sending his son and to us. He gives the opportunity in the death of his son. He gives the opportunity in the resurrection of his son. The disciples' proclamation of his son was a opportunity. God gives through the Bible, which is the word of God, the God of the word, which is the son. And God constantly gives himself. 
and he gives himself to reveal himself so we don't have to guess at who he is. This is an amazing grace, this gift of us getting what we do not deserve in Jesus Christ. So God is a giver of many gifts, and he is so patient. He is so patient with the nation of Israel, and he's so patient with us. Listen, God is more patient than you are. Did you know that? Like, no matter what you're going through, when your patience would run out, God's will not. And you might say yes and amen, but let me say something that you might not want to hear. Yes, it's true that God's patience is more than yours, but God's patience is not infinite. A few weeks ago, I made the point of talking about the parent who had his son at Disneyland, and his son was messing around, and he got out of line while they were in line for a a ride, and the father started counting at his son. He's like, Billy, get back here. One, two, two and a half, two and three quarters, two and some other number I don't understand because I'm not good at math. And then when he got to three, you know what he did? Nothing. And for some reason, we, people who claim that we're followers of Jesus, want God to be that absentee father like that. We want him to just keep counting and just constantly give us patience. And yet God's patience does run out eventually. So for some of us, our stance or the way we talk about God is, well, why doesn't God just save everyone? Why doesn't he just force himself on everybody? And I think you might be a little narrow in your understanding if you think that God should just save everyone. Because the question really is, why would God save anyone? Knowing how messed up we are, knowing how spiritually bankrupt we are, if grace is getting what we do not deserve, then why do we think that some deserve grace? See, I love my God. I love him. I love my Father in heaven, the Son whom he sent, and the Spirit who he gave. But I would not love my God unless he put that desire in my heart. I don't think I would have repented of sin. I don't think I would have repented of any sin without God's intervention. And I don't think I would hate the sin I once loved and love the son I once ignored unless God, through his grace, intervened. The great thing about the grace of God is that it's available to all who hear about it. Let me say that again. The great thing about the grace of God is that it is available to all who hear about it, but we still have a responsibility to receive it through faith. So here's how John continues as he quotes Isaiah, Isaiah 6 actually. For this reason, verse 39 of John 12, for this reason they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Okay, I'm going to let this just sit for a second because if you read this verse without any context, without any understanding of what he's saying, this sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't it seem like John is implying that that those who cannot see Jesus for who he is is because God won't allow it? See, God intervenes and he draws men, he draws women, he draws children to himself, not because anyone earned it or deserves it, but because of God's incomparable riches expressed to us in kindness of Christ Jesus. Let me go to a passage we love to go to. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's writing to the church of Ephesus, and he says, but because of his great love for us, or in ESV, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. 
It is by grace, getting what you do not deserve, that you have been saved. And God has raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, why? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And the word of God, the truth of God, is so powerful, it is so volatile, that it is never without effect. That's the truth of the word. As I read the word to you, as you listen to the word, even if you're thinking about what you have to do later today, or you're thinking about your past week, no matter what, if you're hearing the word of God, it is, with, it is never without effect. And as God sends out the prophet Isaiah in 739 BC, he sent him out to speak the truth of God from his word to warn and let the Jewish people know that they needed to repent. But when the living and active word would go out and be heard without the response of obedience, it really would just lead to hardness of heart. But you may ask, are you saying that God hardens people's hearts? I'm glad you asked. I'm saying that the solution to our sin condition is also the judgment to our sin condition. It's the truth of God. And he knows that many, when, he, when the word of God goes out, when the truth of God goes out, he knows that many won't ever apply, obey, put into practice, or keep his word for the right reasons. So instead of saying, it's okay, keep doing what you're not doing, God sends his word to his people and he effectively brings life or he brings judgment. Hardness of heart is talked about in Exodus regarding Pharaoh about 10 times. And we're not going to go there. We're not going to spend all our time there. But Pharaoh, God sends all these plagues because Pharaoh will not let God's people go. And six times it says in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But four times it says that God hardened his heart. Some commentaries will attempt to make the hardening seem less judgmental and just say that God gave Pharaoh what he wanted. And that's true. But here's the thing. God knows what we all want, and no one in their natural state, church, no one based on their own personal natural state wants God. No one wants holiness. No one wants glory to go to God. I don't care if you're a pastor's kid. That doesn't mean that you want glory to go to God. You might have been taught about Jesus from an early age, but in your natural state, you don't want God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 I've read this passage before. Paul says, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are only discerned only through the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. So I'd contend, unless God intervenes, all we get is hardness of heart. All we get is disobedience and our unwillingness to give God the glory that he is due. But God. Look at what Paul comments on in, when he comments on Exodus in his letter to the Romans. Here's what he says in Romans 9. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort. I'm sorry, let me say that again. It does not, therefore, 
depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So let's look at our responsibility when it comes to hardness of heart, because I think it's more telling than we think. In fact, I would say that it's filtering. Hardness of heart happens when? When we hear the truth of God and we do not put it into action. So this applies to every single one of us. When we hear the truth of God, now we hear the truth of God when it's being preached on a Sunday, when we do a devotional, when we listen to a podcast that's hopefully teaching the Bible, when we hear the word of God and it's taught truthfully, when we do not do what God commands us to do by hearing the word of God, our heart hardens. God tells us what to do and we rebel by rejecting or neglecting the commands of God. We have used this analogy before, but I want to point this out to you because Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, the prince of all preachers, back in in the early 1900s, once compared the practice of the word of God to climbing of an ice mountain. So imagine you're climbing an ice mountain, all right? Can you imagine this? You've got these pitchforks that you're trying to get up this mountain, and as you're going up the mountain, you're putting in a ton of effort, and it's going to be tiring, and you're going to put in effort, and there are going to be moments where you feel like it's not worth it, and it's going to take a lot of discipline and effort, but you will make progress towards the top as you put in effort. In this analogy, let's say the top of the mountain is our Christ-likeness, that as we're putting into practice God's word, as we're going up the mountain, we're looking more like Jesus. But what happens as we're climbing this mountain if we stop putting in effort? What happens? We slide down. Why? Because everything's melting around us because we're not putting in effort. We're not trying to get up the mountain. So the word, Christian, church, person, that we claim that we trust, we believe that God revealed his will and himself in, written by the Holy Spirit, is necessary to our spiritual progress and our holiness, and our Christ-likeness. And to ignore or disobey God's word is to allow our hearts to become harder and harder. So do we harden our hearts when we refuse to apply what the word teaches us? Absolutely. And does God harden our hearts by giving us his word? Unfortunately, yes. But that same word that can harden our hearts can also bring life to us. Because that word became flesh, he dwelled among us, and he is alive and active and worthy of our obedience. So I don't want anyone to get it twisted. I don't want anyone to think that just coming to church is good. I'm glad you guys are here. I'm bummed when people who claim that they're part of this community aren't here because they miss out on what God is teaching us, where we're all going in the same direction. But coming to church does not make you a Christian. Going to a community group does not make you a Christian. Even being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. It is by God's grace that you can become a Christian and receiving the goodness of his truth. And when you have, you want to do what he says, not perfectly, but progressing. This is why we so encourage discipleship at COV. That's why we offer community groups. That's why we want people to be in community so they can be held accountable, they can be loved on, that they can be checked in on. That's why we encourage one-on-one relationships in our community where we can encourage people to put into practice what they're learning. 
But here's the thing, if you want to be discipled, there's actually a responsibility for those of us who want to be invested in. We should be faithful, we should be available, we should be teachable. I'll let you figure out the acronym for that. And really, when we have someone investing in us, they're the person who are really just cheerleading us to keep going up the mountain as we put in effort to apply God's word to our lives. Verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Isaiah 6 speaks of God. It speaks of Yahweh and his judgment. And John points out the same God of Isaiah in the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. Verse 42, yet at the same time, John says, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. Now, this is interesting. John said that many believed, and yet they were unwilling to acknowledge their faith because of fear of being excommunicated from the religion that they had adhered to for so long. They were fearful. And I'd contend that even though they might have believed in Jesus, they, like the demons that James points to in the letter to the church, did not have a saving faith. Here's what James says about the demons in James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Believing all the right things does not save you, church. There are wonderfully brilliant theologians who are in hell. Truly. Knowing, trusting, obeying, and following Jesus is what saves you. Because of what God has done for you and you understand who he is. Here is what I know. You can believe a lot of the right things intellectually, and it will never really change who you are, nor your eternal destiny. But there is no one in the kingdom of God. There is no one in the kingdom of God who doesn't love Jesus Christ. There isn't. And love for Jesus Christ, love for who he is, love for what he's done, love for the fact that he is who he says that he is, is what really filters those who are in the kingdom and who aren't. So church, maybe when we share of how good God is, we shouldn't just attempt to convince people of our theology, but introduce them to our Lord, who is good and who is God and who is love personified. Verse 43, John speaking of these people who believed but didn't want to be taken out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Hmm. So these people who believed in Jesus, they were fearful. They were unwilling to acknowledge their belief, and they would rather have human praise than praise from God. This actually points out a passage or a piece of what Jesus said last week that we studied in John 12, 25, where he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. For what audience, church, do you live your life for? What audience do you live your life for? The public or for God. This may be the most fundamental problem in the world today for people who identify as Christians, especially in our culture in America. Do we want praise from man? Do we want to be acknowledged for our good deeds? Do we want to be liked, loved, poked, shared, retweeted more than we want to put on display the glory of God through our lives being hijacked by God's intervention? Verse 44 then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, 
but in the one who sent them. What Jesus starts to say here, to be honest, seems to be without context. John says that he cried out, and some theologians, some commentators, point out that this could be looked at as a synopsis of all of Jesus' public ministry, because that's what we've studied. We've studied Jesus' public ministry, his conversations with people, and now what we're going to study over the next few months is going to be Jesus just with his disciples. The next time we're going to see Jesus in front of the public, it's when they go to crucify him. And he says, whoever believes in me, whoever has the Son, has the Father. This is so consistent throughout the Gospel of John. It's almost as consistent as we say at COV that Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. It's the only time I'm going to say it today. Probably not. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Then in John 14, 9, he said, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Even John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who writes a letter to the church in 1 John, says it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So thinking you can have one without the other is an eternal mistake that many make when they think that it's enough to just believe in God and they think that they're a spiritual person but they don't actually believe in God with sin. So many see Jesus as a moral teacher or maybe even a prophet, but to miss his deity is to miss God completely, both literally and spiritually. John Piper said it this way, if you don't have Jesus as your savior, you don't have God as your father. So church, those who are part of this Christian church, don't get it twisted. To know God is to know the son. Personally, experientially and intellectually. Don't have just experience and don't have just intellect. But when both collide, you can know that you have a personal relationship with the God of the word who revealed himself to his creation. Verse 45, Jesus says, the one who looks at me has seen the one who sent me. Jesus doubles down. And he lets whoever he is speaking to, possibly in the synapsis of his ministry, that when you look at the son, you also see the sender who is the father. Verse 46, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. We like light, don't we? I mean, right now I don't because it's making me sweat. But we like light. And we've heard Jesus speak of being the light of the world. We have heard him use the light metaphor. Even in this passage we studied last week. But look at the implication for what Jesus is saying. To forsake the light is to be in utter darkness. Those who forsake the light are in the dark. They are without vision to see or a light to lead. Their sin is their only lens to view this world through. But those who do believe in him... They view the world through his light, not because of deserving it, but because they've received it. Verse 47, if anyone hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. Say what? For I did not come to the world to judge the world, but to save the world. 
the first time I read this, and I was studying this with Laura and Aaron as we we're talking about the service this week, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem consistent. Don't we hear Jesus speaking about those who obey his word and keep his word elsewhere? In fact, it was at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 where he says, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So what Jesus seems to imply at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is those who keep his word by obeying it versus those who disobey is a filter for those who are actually his and those who are not his. So what is Jesus implying here in John chapter 12? That those who don't keep his word will not be judged because he came to save and not condemn? Let me read it again, but let me jump into the next verse. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, verse 47, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world, verse 48. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. Happy, happy, joy, joy. So Jesus says that he is putting aside his judge's robe, for a time where the word, his word, the word of God will condemn. Because all that we need to know about Christ from the public ministry of Jesus is coming to an end. So does he judge? Yes, eventually. But he is making known that his grace and the invitation is available to all of those who hear and are willing to repent. What he says here runs parallel with what is said about him in John chapter 3. You know the first verse. In fact, as we put it up there, I bet you you could say it from memory. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So we know that part. And even verse 17 sounds awesome. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is good news. Jesus didn't come to condemn. We all ha already have condemnation heaped on us. We are without a life raft, people. We are without the ability to save ourselves from sin. If we try to sin less, we just become more legalistic. If we throw our hands up because we know we can't make up for our sin, we tend to live in liberty. If we try to be more pious or religious, we become more self-righteous. It's almost like mankind can't win unless the Savior comes for us. Uh -huh. So look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So I don't know how you understand sovereignty. I know how some of you understand it. That God predetermines, or let me say a word that makes us freak out, predestines, God foreknows both belief and unbelief. I don't know if that's offensive to you. I don't know if you will go, I can't believe in a God that would do that. And maybe you're right. Maybe you can't. <laughs> but I'll tell you this. Your opinion about God, and I say this with love, means nothing. 
in comparison to what God reveals about himself in his word. Because we don't have to guess at what he's like. We don't have to try to color in who he is based on our culture or our preferences. He did the heavy lifting for us. He created his perfect will written down in his perfect word as it was originally communicated so that thousands of years later, we, church, could trust, obey, follow, love, exalt the God of the word to the people of the world so they could know the God of the universe, not just in intellect or acknowledgement, but in spirit and in truth. Verse 49. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. (laughs) He points to the Father. Jesus once again points to his Father in heaven, God the Father, whose words abound in Jesus as he speaks it personally to those who he talks to. Imagine that the Word is speaking the Word, which is truly the filter for all that believe. The word condemns those who reject it, but the word gives life to those who receive it. James chapter 4, verse 12, first part of it says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. It is just God. Even though he exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God can both save and destroy. He is sovereign over everything. I know He says in verse 50, I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So I don't know how you hear this. I don't know if this is enough time for you to grapple with this. I don't know if you look at this and go, wow, that's not the character that I expected of my God. But let me remind you that God is God. And we are not. Jesus doesn't point out the condemnation because he knows the word will ultimately do that because it filters those who are his and those who aren't. And we've said it before that the word reads us more than we read it. But he points out, he concludes his public ministry that eternal life, church, is available for all who would believe, all who would trust God at his word and trust his son as Savior and Lord. They would be adopted by the Father, and the Holy Spirit would indwell in them. Seems like the greatest offer ever, doesn't it? And I pray that each of us would look at this offer not as how that would be such a great offer for someone else. Oh, I just wish this person was here to to hear this. I, I can't wait to get this on video or podcast so I can send it. No, 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 no. Would you listen to this offer for yourself first? And by faith, repent to turn from your sin and to turn to the Son as your only hope in this world. I've been sick all week. I really don't feel great. I really didn't realize how bad I'd feel until I got up here and these lights started to melt me. But Wednesday, Wednesday was the roughest. I stayed in bed all day. I slept and then woke up every hour. So I didn't really feel rested. I was sweating and then I'd have chills. And then I was sweating, and then I'd have chills. And I took medicine. I drank liquids. I rested and rinse and repeat. Thursday, I felt a little bit better. But every time I moved around, I was nauseous. And I needed to take a break. I have the best wife on earth who just goes, babe, get, get better. 
and don't cough on me. Friday, I woke up feeling worse than Thursday, but not necessarily as bad as Wednesday. Yay. Saturday, I tired myself out pretty easily, and I'm sure this afternoon I will be horizontal in my bed. But I, through all of this time, being able to sit and rest and be quiet and cough, this analogy started to come to mind about our human condition. And I don't really do props very often, but for once, you guys get a prop. You're welcome. I don't do props. I don't think that way very often. I'm very grateful for Mike, who does think that way, very visual thinker. I'm more of an audio thinker. But I started to think of, okay, so my sickness. Well, whoo, I'm dizzy. My sickness. Me falling over might have done that. That would be a good prop. So we're going to use Kleenex, even though I didn't use that much Kleenex this week because I'm gross. Um, we'll use Kleenex as my sickness condition. And I want you to think past just the sickness condition, because maybe you're not sick, and this doesn't apply. Sabina and I understand. But like, maybe you're not sick this week, but let's also look at this as possibly our sin condition, that we're sick, that we have this condition of sin, that we want to do things that go against God. And so we use the Kleenex box as the example of that. Second, I have this other example. This is cold and flu, Walgreens edition, essentially an off-brand version of NyQuil and DayQuil that I took this week, all right? Now, this, this is medicine, and my wife thinks I'm a hypochondriac. She's probably right, but, like, I took it, and I was like, oh, I think I'm feeling better. And then I realized, as I looked at the pills the second time I went to take them, that they had expired in April of 2019. And then I was like, I don't feel so good. <laughs> now... <laughs> For whatever reason, I don't think this medicine was that effective. In fact, I'd say it was ineffective. And honestly, I don't think medicine is the cure for what I'm going through. It's really just a tool, unfortunately, to manage the symptoms that I currently have. So in a way, this box of expired, ineffective, off-brand medicine is really just like our religion. Right? Where we think, oh, if I just go and do these things, if I just... Uh, make my conscience feel a little bit better blah, blah, better because I went to church. If I just do things a little nicer, if I'm just nicer to people, then, then me and God are good, right? We think that we trust and believe God because we act more moral. Or we do what we see other people doing, and really, we're just attempting to manage the symptoms of our sin condition. Here's the third and final symbol of my sickness this week. In fact, it's the one that required the most effort from me, all right, for sure. It required the most humility in me, and it required the most sacrifice in me, for sure. It's my pillow. I know. Everyone on the worship team's like, did you bring it to rest? Yes. And that pillow, listen, I'm no doctor, but I don't think there's any medicine that affects or cures the common cold more than just good rest, truly. And I suck at rest. Anyone else? Thank God. There are things that have to be done, and I need to do them. But I am so grateful for Mike, who went and did a bunch of my meetings on Wednesday. He met with Daniel, which is kind of one of my favorite meetings. 
He went and invested in our interns for me, which was awesome. He and Karen went and invested in the, the community group that I get to lead on Wednesday nights, and now everyone's going to be bummed that I'm going to be back this week. No, I got the note. It said that. It didn't say that. Exactly. I read between the lines. But I'm so grateful for people that s stepped up and took on some of the responsibilities that I had. But this pillow, church, <laughs> now that you guys know what our bed looks like, this pillow, this pillow represents Jesus. Not just because the Bible says that Jesus is our rest. Okay, that's true. <laughs> but it was because of complete and utter reliance on rest rather than just trying to work out getting over the sickness this week or just trying to take more medicine and manage my symptoms that has been helping. There is no amount of religion, there is no amount of working my way to God that will ever do a lick of good spiritually. It is only through belief and trust and faith in God's only son that you can be made whole, that you can be made righteous, that you can be made right. You can do all that you need to do, not in trying to work harder, but in receiving God's only son by complete reliance upon him that eternal life is offered to you and you can receive it. So I don't want any of us just attempting to manage our symptoms of sin and sickness with expired medicine, a.k.a. religion. But would we believe in and actually believe God at his word? The same God who created the earth and the heavens, the same God who sent prophets to tell the nation of Israel to repent, the same God who took on skin and lived the perfect life we could not live, died a sinner's death we should have died, and physically rose from the dead, the same God who can heal a lot more than the common cold, church. He can be the solution to our sin condition, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray.